Little inspires more fear and anxiety than a medical procedure. Luckily, most doctors and surgeons are required to go to great lengths to master their profession. But let's face it, nobody's perfect. Don Church received a medical diagnosis that everybody dreads. He had a tumor. However, this wasn't a small tumor. It was a 13-pound tumor located in his stomach that had to be removed immediately. So Don promptly underwent surgery at the University of Washington Medical Center. Fortunately, his surgeon was an expert at removing the tumor. Not so fortunately, his surgeon was also a bit forgetful. Don was sent home after his surgery and experienced severe abdominal pain. This, of course, could be expected after the removal of such a large tumor, but more and more time passed. The pain only became worse. He notified the hospital, but he was assured that the pain was normal. But Don knew something wasn't right. Some days he would spend curled up on his bathroom floor sobbing relentlessly from the pain. Aside from this, he began to develop a metallic taste in his mouth. When he managed to be able to do any traveling, he would set off metal detectors at the airport. He knew something was wrong. These occurrences, months after his surgery, were anything but normal. So Don went to his family doctor who, while examining Don, felt an abnormal lump in his abdomen. X-rays revealed that Don had a 13-inch long metal retractor sealed inside his body. The tool is used to keep a wound open during surgery, and though counting tools after surgery is typical medical procedure, the surgeon somehow overlooked one of the largest tools of all. Don underwent emergency surgery to have the metal retractor removed and suffered no lasting effects. For his trouble, the hospital paid him nearly $100,000. It was revealed that Don was the fourth instance where a metal retractor was left inside of a patient at that same hospital. Jessica Santillan and her family went to extraordinary lengths to see that she got adequate medical care. At such a young age, Jessica was plagued by a disorder that was killing her. Her heart and lungs were on a path to failure, and no doctor in her home country of Mexico could help her. So her family did what any family would, they worked to find her the help she needed to survive at any cost. Jessica's family actually managed to smuggle her into the United States, and they took up residency in a trailer in North Carolina. Having no money, Jessica's family continued to champion for her cause. They started fundraisers and raised enough money to see to it that Jessica would be able to get a heart and double lung transplant. The surgery would be a life-changing one, even if successful, but for Jessica and her family, it would become a horrifying ordeal. Surgeons prepared to work and put Jessica under anesthesia. The lung machines and bypass were all started and the surgeons were ready to begin. The surgeon's expert hands went to work and admittedly they worked well. Jessica's new heart and lungs were transplanted without an issue. Her lungs began breathing on their own and her new heart started beating away. The surgeon was preparing to close her up and send her to the ICU. That's when they received a call from immunology. 
They informed the surgeon of the horrific truth. While Jessica had type O blood, the organs she was given were type A. Her body immediately began to dispense antibodies that started destroying her new organs. Not only wasting perfectly good organs, but putting Jessica into serious jeopardy. Doctors did all they could for Jessica. They found new compatible organs and performed a second transplant procedure. Unfortunately, Jessica slipped into a coma and suffered severe brain damage and died just days later. Her family sued the hospital for an undisclosed amount of money. Neither the family nor the hospital are allowed to talk about the settlement. Sherman Sizemore, a Baptist minister, began to experience unexplained abdominal pain, so he was scheduled for exploratory surgery. Sherman was admitted to Raleigh General Hospital in West Virginia. To keep Sherman's muscles from twitching during the procedure, he was administered a paralytic drug. Unable to move, doctors cut him open and began to search through Sherman's organs, physically shifting his insides about. Everything seemed to be going well. But for Sherman, the procedure was anything but well. What the surgeon hadn't realized was that Sherman was under the effects of the paralytic drug, but he hadn't yet been put under general anesthesia. Sherman, while being cut open and searched through, may have been unable to move or react, but he was fully awake and aware. He felt every inch of the incision, every poke and prod, but there was nothing he could do about it. After the surgery, Sherman's life changed dramatically. The experience was so torturous that it scarred him physically and mentally. He started to experience terrible nightmares and couldn't be left alone. The hospital didn't immediately admit to their error, causing Sherman to struggle with not knowing if his memories were real or not. It tormented his every waking moment. Eventually, he started to become delusional and believe that people were trying to bury him alive. Less than one month later, Sherman shot himself to death. Experts estimate that tens of thousands of patients experience what is called anesthetic awareness each year during surgery. While these instances may scare you, don't worry. You probably won't ever have this type of experience. Probably. Doctors, trusted professionals whose main job is to get you back on your feet or to keep you on your feet, but so many of us still try to avoid them. There's something unsettling about coming face to face with your own health, but for some doctors, health plays no role at all. And how could you possibly tell if the one standing at your bedside is a caretaker or an angel of death? <laughs> Michael Swango was a very smart man. In high school, he was already considered a genius, with an IQ of around 160. Named high school student of the year, he graduated at the top of his class. He was destined for great things, such as becoming a doctor. And that's exactly what he decided to do. In medical school, however, Swango ran into a few problems. He would often put his studies off so that he could work as an ambulance attendant. It had become obvious to some that Swango had a certain addiction for being around death and destruction. He would get excited when approaching car wrecks. Many of the victims he would be assigned to take care of would end up experiencing life-threatening emergencies. 
five of them even died under his care. Swango hadn't done nearly as well in university as he had in high school, and due to the fact that he put off so much of his work and he'd often falsify course requirements, he was almost kicked out of medical school. But despite all of this, Swango was accepted in 1983 into an internship at Ohio State University's Medical Center. It was here that Swango began to care for patients one-on-one. -on -one. Multiple patients complained that a certain blonde doctor fitting his description had given them something that harmed them. One woman was even recovering nicely from an automobile accident. Swango dropped by a room to take blood samples, and shortly thereafter, the woman was dead. Because of all these incidents, staff took notice and reported him. However, to avoid potential lawsuits, the hospital refused to go to authorities and simply let him finish out the year without rehiring him afterwards. He was eventually given another job, this time in Illinois. He'd often come in bearing gifts for his co-workers, coffee and desserts to eat, and each time his co-workers would fall violently ill. He was eventually found out and promptly fired. It had seemed that Swango was a menace, and an untouchable menace at that. His co-workers eventually found out that he was trying to poison them, and for that, he spent five years in prison. But once he was released, he simply continued to practice. He managed to work several other jobs where he would have access to his insatiable hunger for murder. He changed his name, falsified documents, and moved from place to place, always in search for more people to kill. He even began poisoning his own girlfriend. In 1994, with the FBI close at his heels, Swango fled the country for Zimbabwe. While in Zimbabwe, he was swiftly suspended for the suspicion of, yet again, killing his patients. But Swango continued to do his dirty work, whether it involved hiring a lawyer or just moving on. Even the woman who had housed him during his stay ended up being poisoned. No one was safe. Thankfully, Swango was eventually brought to justice and sentenced to life in prison without parole. It is believed that he is responsible for over 60 murders. Imagine having to give birth to a child, but your midwife the one attending you is the director of the maternity hospital. You must be in pretty good hands, right? Miyuki Ishikawa was an experienced midwife from Japan. She would assist countless mothers through the ordeal of childbirth, and she did her job very well. But when the 1940s came, so came a baby boom. And with the boom came poor mothers, far too poor to care for their own children adequately. Ishikawa ran into a bit of a predicament. Her maternity hospital was already practically overflowing with newborns. She couldn't send them off to live with their mothers, and there weren't enough charitable services to go around. So, out of the kindness of her heart, she devised a very permanent solution to the problem. Ishikawa began taking in the newborns so the mothers didn't have to. Thinking their child had adequate care, they would sleep better at night that way. The newborns, however, weren't so lucky. Ishikawa would keep the babies in the building, sure, but without the proper resources to care for them, the babies would be neglected, ignored. It'd be like they weren't even there, and right in the place they were set, they would wither and die from hunger or dehydration. 
Ishikawa would continue this practice for some time, and as babies' bodies began to pile up, she would take them and hide them throughout the city. Because of her detestable acts, nearly all of the other midwives of the hospital resigned. Ishikawa, unfazed, began to expand her practice. She, with the aid of her husband, would begin to collect payment for her unique service convincing the mothers that they'd never be able to afford the child. This was a much more inexpensive option. They were even able to employ a doctor in on the scheme who would gladly falsify death certificates. Ishikawa, her husband, and their doctor were all caught after police accidentally stumbled upon five dead babies in a bag. When she was arrested in 1948, she blamed the parents for having abandoned their children, which, oddly enough, she received a lot of public support for. But overall, she was sentenced to prison. Ishikawa spent less than 10 years in prison for her actions and is believed she is linked to the deaths of over 160 newborns. Dr. Death is a name adopted by a number of different figures throughout history, some real and some fictional, but no one deserved the title quite as much as Dr. Harold Shipman. As a teenager, Harold Shipman became very familiar with the medical profession. His mother battled lung cancer until she passed away in 1963. One of the most interesting things to him, however, was the power of morphine. He graduated from Leeds University Medical School in 1970 and afterwards took up a job as a general practitioner. Unfortunately, only four years after graduating, Shipman began to abuse his position, prescribing himself prescription painkillers to which he became addicted. He was caught after some time and fired, fined, and sent to rehab. However, his license to practice medicine was still in place. Once released from rehab, he was able to convince a hiring committee that he was a changed man, and truth be told, he was. Shipman received a clean slate and worked as a general practitioner in a different hospital until 1993. It was at this time that he set up a private practice where he would specialize in house calls. He dropped by the bedsides of the elderly to administer care. Truth be told, he would see to the death of most of these people by injecting them with overdoses of heroin, then simply walking away. For reasons he kept to himself, Shipman was more partial to killing elderly women, but he also killed his fair share of men as well. However, not all of them elderly. His youngest victim was only 41 years old. After murdering their relatives, Shipman would confront grieving family members and suggest that their lost love should be cremated. Of course, this was to cover his tracks, and a surprising number of people agreed and willingly signed off on destroying all of the evidence. It was such a surprising number that a local funeral parlor expressed concerns to the coroner over the number of deaths under Shipman's care and the number of cremation forms for elderly women. This information was brought to police, but they were unable to find sufficient evidence to bring forward charges. Shipman continued to kill until his final victim, Kathleen Grundy, a former mayor and an elderly woman in very good health, was found dead in her home in 1998. 
Grundy's daughter was a lawyer and had received word that her mother had left a will behind. When she read it, it had excluded Grundy's children and grandchildren, but left 386,000 pounds to Dr. Harold Shipman. Luckily, Grundy's body hadn't been cremated like so many others and her body was promptly exhumed. It was found that she had heroin in her system, which led to further investigations and eventually to the collapse of Dr. Death himself. In 2000, Harold Shipman was arrested and sentenced to 15 consecutive life sentences, plus four more years for forging the will. But he only ended up serving four years until he hanged himself with his own bedsheets inside his cell. Though he was only found guilty for 15 murders, that's all they could prove. But it is well known that Harold Shipman is linked to over 300 murders. Unbelievable how dedicated some people are to murder. They'll dedicate most of their lives just for the chance of ending yours. Though we hope we never have to use it, medical technology can be quite impressive. Some of the things that would have killed us a century ago are easy fixes now. Sometimes they're so good they get a little bit creepy. Three-dimensional printing has opened a whole new door to science and technology, but most importantly, it has been able to save lives. In December of 2013, a 22-year-old woman from the Netherlands was suffering from a life-threatening bone disorder, one that caused the thickness of her skull to increase in up to five centimeters of density. The painful disorder had caused the patient to experience severe headaches and even caused her to lose most of her eyesight. Unable to live a healthy life, a team of neurosurgeons at the University Medical Center of Utrecht came together to create the very first 3D printed cranium that would soon be a perfect replica of the woman's skull. The skull was made specifically for the patient using a durable plastic that was intended to mimic bone and would not be rejected by the patient's body. The process was composed of completely removing the top half of the patient's skull and then drilling bolts attached to the printed skull into the remaining cranium while doing little to no damage to the brain. Anticipating the medical breakthrough, the team of neurosurgeons worked on their patient for over 23 hours. After a complicated operation, the skull implant was eventually a success. The patient regained her eyesight soon after and no longer experienced the excruciating headaches. But 3D printing hasn't just replaced bone. When 60-year-old Eric Moger surprised his girlfriend by proposing to her over Christmas dinner in 2012, he had no idea that he would face an aggressive tumor that would turn both of their worlds upside down. Doctors told Eric that his tumor was approximately the size of a tennis ball and would eventually have to be removed. However, not only would he lose the tumor, he would also lose the entire left section of his face. The extent of the removal caused him to lose his eye, cheekbone, and most of his jaw, leaving a gaping hole where his facial features once had been. With his disfigurement, Eric was unrecognizable to loved ones and was often stared down in public, so obviously he sought out help. 
By creating scans of what was left of his skull, computers were able to recreate what his face would eventually look like. The computer scans allowed doctors to design a scaffold to replace the missing bone in Eric's face, created from titanium using a technique known as 3D milling. A plastic plate was also created using a printed model of Eric's skull to help form a seal at the top of his mouth, allowing him to eat and drink again. With the success of Eric's printed implant, he now looks forward to the rest of his life with a new face. 3D printing is always expanding into things such as synthetic skin, heart valves, and even organs are on the horizon. Cyborgs, humans that are part machine, are no longer just works of science fiction. Larry Hester was just 33 years old when doctors diagnosed him with retinitis pigmentosa, a genetic condition leading to retinal degeneration, which affects over 1.5 million people worldwide. For his entire life, Larry suffered with severe and incurable vision problems that permanently took away his vision. With the help of Dr. Paul Hahn, Larry was able to regain his vision once again with bionic eyes, something he never thought he would ever be able to use in his lifetime. Larry was the first patient in North America to actually receive bionic eyes at the Duke University Eye Center. The operation consists of electrodes implanted onto Larry's retina. Once wearing eyeglasses equipped with a video camera, the captured video is processed as electrical impulses back to the retina and then sent to the brain, creating basic vision that helps him to see once again. Larry is now 66 years old and is for the first time in a long time able to decipher light and shapes. Over the years, the development of artificial wombs have been a largely sought-after technology. Today, human reproductive medicine has advanced more than we could have ever imagined. Yoshinori Kuwabara, chairman of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Juntendo University in Tokyo, has developed an artificial womb with the technique called extrauterine fetal incubation. His interest grew out of his previous experiences with patients giving birth to premature infants. In order to test out the theory of an artificial womb, Yoshinori and his team of scientists used goat fetuses, supplying the fetuses with oxygenated blood while suspending them in incubators that contain artificial amniotic fluid heated to body temperature. Though it may seem like a great thing on the surface, Kuwabara's developments did spark a significant amount of controversy. Many people have speculated that artificial wombs could make life much easier and safer for mothers and their developing fetuses, while others argue that such an invention will cause fetuses to lack intimacy and bonding between mother and child. Bioethicists have suggested ectogenesis would also benefit same-sex couples using surrogate mothers. Last week, I showed you a video of a fish acting like a puppy. Now, let's imagine a different scenario. Imagine a cat maybe taking on the instincts of a mother bird. Imagine if scientists had the ability to transfer the consciousness of one animal into the body of another. What kind of possibilities would this open up for medical science? I'd like to let you all know that Seriously Strange has its own Twitter. Here you can get extra doses of creepiness about anything from the bizarre and unexplainable to serial killers. If you just so happen to have trouble waiting for a new episode of Seriously Strange each week, you can go down into the description below and there is a link down there. Be sure to follow it 
you won't regret it. That's all for now. Remember, you may not believe it, but anything is possible in a world so seriously strange. Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way because we can't do this without our listeners' support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care and enjoy your next episode.